Welcome to another installment of Historical Homicide. Happy Halloween, dear listeners. I'm your host, Christina Bentley, here to draw you into the dark and terrifying tales of yesteryear. My question for you today is this. What fascinates you about true crime? Do you want to glean a deeper understanding of what drives one to kill another? Are you interested in learning more to protect yourself or those you love? Is it pure morbid curiosity, a train wreck you just can't look away from, an intriguing mystery, a puzzle you crave to solve? Or does the fear-fueled adrenaline rush keep you coming back for more? Whatever your reasons for loving true crime are, and there seem to be many, Let's focus on the stories themselves. What makes a story stand out in our minds, or even in the public conscience? Shock? Surprise? Disturbances? What deep-seated emotions linger on? Let's discuss that unrelenting feeling. Let's talk about what makes you feel haunted. Chautauqua County, New York 1816. We're in the small village of Fredonia, which is mainly farmland. A new family is just moving into the area, the Damon family, all the way from Massachusetts. The parents, Stephen and Hannah, have four sons, Stephen Jr., North, yes, his name is North, Martin, and Joseph. The rumor is that Stephen Jr. is only a half-brother but no one knows the circumstances around that situation. Let's pause here momentarily. I mentioned Stephen Jr. simply because of his existence. In keeping this story historically accurate, I want to at least identify him. Throughout our tale today, we don't hear anything else about Stephen Jr. All right, unpause. Back to our story. The youngest son, Joseph, is 16, and already a strong, hard worker. In fact, he starts a business with his older brother, Martin. Joseph is the brute force behind the operation, while his older brother, Martin, is the finesse, focusing on the finer details. What is their business, you ask? Stonework, mainly gravestones. Joseph quarries the rock while Martin sculpts it into tragically beautiful works of art. In fact, their business starts to attract lots of attention from men in high places. Everyone from doctors to judges to wealthy businessmen want work done by the Damon brothers. They're known for their craftsmanship, elaborate designs, and solid reputation. The Damons are in high demand, and business is good. But truly, it's a wonder Joseph and Martin are in business together at all. Personality-wise, they're complete opposites. Joseph is tall, strong, brawny. He always carries a bottle of liquor with him and drinks it liberally. Although he imbibes continually, he's never been argumentative. No employer has ever had any issue with him. He's a man of few words and gets the job done. Martin, on the other hand, is said to have a weak heart. He's strong for his craft, but not as large as his brother. 
He's witty, clever, ready with a quick whip, and exchanges a lively banter. He's a true artist devoted to creating the most ornate works. Martin and his wife live with Martin's parents, essentially acting as their caretakers in their advanced age. Across the road, Joseph and his wife, Almira, live with their two children. With a booming business and growing family, all seems well. But, as with all of our tales, contentment is short-lived, and the feeling of intensity and static energy in the air thickens. Anticipation turns to dread, hopes turn to fear, as our story unfolds. The crime we are about to discuss is the first murder trial tried in Chautauqua County. This homicide has resonated intensely in the minds of the public. For many years, this incident became an indicator of time. For example, that was before the Damon trial, or that was five years after the Damon trial. The community's memory fixated on this haunting tale for years. And we're about to find out why. Before we find out why, a word from our sponsors. Would you kill to be beautiful? The good news is, you don't have to. Visit the Aesthetic House on Fairmount Avenue in Jamestown. Their kind and supportive staff will put you at ease. They offer a wide range of medical spa services, diamond glow skin treatments, Botox, facial fillers, lip blushing, microblading, laser hair removal, and so much more. And coming soon, skin tightening and body contouring. Book your appointment with the Figaro app under the Aesthetic House or call them at 716-640-2499. April 24th, 1834. The day starts early. Tension already in the air. Joseph wakes up and his bad mood rears its ugly head right away. He grabs his liquor bottle, throws on his clothes, and slams the door to the house on his way out. Almira, his wife, a woman of faith, has been praying for her husband. They have two children, and she wants to give them a good example of what marriage is. But their father isn't interested in that. These days, he values his marriage to the bottle more than he does to her. Still, even through Joseph's drinking and rage, she loves him. She finds support in her religious meetings and in her husband's family. They support her religious endeavors, hoping that Joseph changes his ways. But something about Joseph's temper today is unsettling. If it doesn't pass, Almira will experience the physical extent of his wrath later. But he always apologizes after he hits her. Always. Anytime Joseph lays a hand on Almira, he sobs in her arms, begs forgiveness, and professes his love for her. And Almira deeply believes in repentance. She forgives him every time. As Joseph storms out of his home, he has one thing on his mind. Almira. Why does she feel the need to meet with religious groups? Why does she cling so tightly to her Bible? 
She relies more on religion than on her own husband. He's fixated on her godly devotion, and his family supports her. They've betrayed him, all of them. They don't respect or value him. He's kept his mouth shut long enough. Joseph leaves the quarry and heads straight to his parents' house across the street from his own. Martin is the first person he sees as he enters the home, and he berates Martin. For what? Martin is unsure, even a bit confused. As his parents enter the room, they become fearful of Joseph's temper. They don't know what he's going on about, but it's best he goes outside to calm down. Joseph grabs his liquor bottle with a menacing look in his eyes. He stomps out of the house and walks across the street to his own. Almira is home, studying her Bible after completing her chores. That's it. This is the last straw. Joseph rages. He screams at the children and orders them to go outside to pick up wood chips. Blinded by anger, he grabs the first thing he sees, an iron fire poker. Almira screams as he charges toward her. She tries to reason with him. She begs him to spare her, not for her own sake, but for the sake of her children. But any part of the Joseph that loves her is gone, and all she sees are his menacing eyes. Before we continue on, a word from our sponsors. Radu's Cup Coffee Shop is located on Chautauqua Avenue in the heart of Lakewood, New York. From a warm and courteous staff, think cheers, where everybody knows your name kind of atmosphere, to high-quality beverages and food options, Rider's Cup offers delicious teas, coffees, shakes, and so much more. Check out their seasonal specials and their artwork displays by local artists. You're sure to find a friendly and fun experience at one of Lakewood's local gems, Rider's Cup Coffee Shop. Martin hears screams from across the street. He runs over immediately. The children are outside, safe, physically unharmed. But their eyes tell a different story. They hear all the commotion inside their home, the fight between their mother and father. The arguments are not unfamiliar to them, but more intense this time. But what's more worrisome now is the sudden silence. As Martin walks toward them, he notices how eerily quiet the air has just become. Joseph's shout pierces the stillness. Martin! Come over here! I think I just killed my wife! Stunned silence. Martin runs into the house as fast as he can to find Almira on the floor. A pool of blood under her head. She's been beaten badly. Her skull is fractured. Her arms are broken and bruised from defending herself against the blows of the fire poker. And Joseph is standing in the middle of the scene covered in his wife's blood. He sets the fire poker down, picks up Elmira, and places her on the bed. She's still breathing. Their brother North heads to Fredonia to find a doctor. It's about three miles from the Damon's house. North finds not just one doctor, but two. Doctors Walworth and Crosby gather their supplies and come to the house post-haste. 
Dr. Walworth is not only a doctor, he's also a county judge. As the doctors arrive at the house, they see a crowd of horrified neighbors. They wade through the queue to get to their patient. It is evident what has transpired and who the perpetrator of this heinous crime is. Joseph Damon. Walworth orders the bystanders to take Joseph, still covered in his wife's blood, into custody. Within an hour of the incident, unconscious Almira breathes her last breath and succumbs to her injuries. Word spreads quickly throughout the county about the murderer, Joseph Damon. It was known that he hit his wife from time to time, but before this, no one wanted to get involved. No one felt it was their business. But now, Almira is dead. Joseph is in jail awaiting trial and their children are essentially orphans. Who would have thought it would come to this? These incidents don't happen in Chautauqua County. Until now. The first murder trial in Chautauqua County is a big deal. It's a lot of pressure. It must be done correctly to set a precedent for future trials. The prosecution and defense attorneys are chosen carefully. For the prosecution, a young lawyer from Buffalo is picked, Sheldon Smith. He just won a big case in which three brothers were sentenced to death for the murder they committed. Sheldon is a hound dog for justice, and he won't rest until the job is done. As for the defense, Mr. James Mullet Esquire decides to represent Joseph Damon. Mr. Mullet has been a county judge. He's a tall man with a deep voice. His use of linguistics is cunning and intriguing. He's a convincing orator and quite popular in the community. He's described as a man of the people with a love of justice. In my mind, I picture him as a John Wayne type with a commanding presence. To say that the judge presiding over the trial feels intimidated is an understatement. Each attorney does an outstanding job representing their side of the case. Mr. Mullet paints a picture of a loving husband haunted by madness and insanity. The image of his dead wife plaguing his dreams, the thought of his children as orphans decimating him. Joseph, not even conscious during the attack, now stuck in a prison cell away from his family. Mr. Smith, on the other hand, details the bludgeoning to death of a sweet woman, a mother with a weak constitution who, before her untimely death, was regularly beaten by a man she should have been able to trust. Damon should pay with his life for his sanguinary actions. In the end, the jury found Joseph Damon guilty of murdering his wife. He receives the death sentence to hang by the neck until dead. Now, let's pause here just briefly. Now, many notable sources name the Damon execution as the last public hanging in Chautauqua County. From my research, I have found this to be misleading. Charles Marlowe's hanging in 1872, if you'll remember from season one, I believe it was episode two. Now, that was the last public execution in the county. 
My only guess as to why Damon's Hanging is recognized over Marlowe's is simply because of its resonance with the citizens of Chautauqua County. Unpause. May 15th, 1835. The day of Joseph Damon's execution. Somewhere between eight to 15,000 people are gathered in Mayville, the county seat, to witness the hanging of a murderer. Public executions attract huge crowds. Onlookers arrive days before and camp out just to have a good view of the proceedings. There are so many people, and events, and games, and peddlers, and more activities in a barn raising, that Sheriff Saxton calls in the militia to help with crowd control. At the request of Damon, Elder Sawyer did the customary sermon from the gallows. As the crowd's attention is drawn to the main event, all is quiet, ominously still. The preacher's voice breaks the silence. And now I shall read from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 19. So he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own death. Joseph Damon, who has shown absolutely no remorse, decides at this moment to chime in. He still doesn't believe that he deserves to die. He speaks to the crowd. He reiterates that he was unconscious at the time of his wife's death, that he would never have killed her if his mind was present. His pleas are to no avail. The noose is lowered and tightened around his neck. Joseph Damon is dropped as the crowd watches with morbid curiosity. The viewers watch aghast as the rope gives way and Joseph drops to the ground, unharmed. This murderer has cheated death. Joseph stands up and yells to Sheriff Saxton that his sentence has been fulfilled. He was hanged. He should be freed. Sheriff Saxton, embarrassed by his blunder, remeasures the hangman's rope so it will not fail again. Joseph Damon is seized and dragged back to the gallows, this time without escape. The rope holds true, and Joseph Damon is dead. But we're not done with Joseph, or Almira, for that matter. We find it odd now that a crowd would gather for such a spectacle, but the grotesque scene is hardly over. Joseph's body is put on display at the Casey Hotel, which is now the Hartfield Deli. People can pay a nickel to take a picture with or even touch his corpse. After the macabre festivities, Sheriff Saxon asks the Damon family where to deliver Joseph's body and the fire poker. Martin and his parents want absolutely nothing to do with it. They are ashamed of Joseph and reject ownership of his body and the murder weapon. Joseph is buried at the county's expense, but Martin, not totally abandoning his brother, carves his gravestone. Before we continue, a word from our sponsors. Evolution Spin Studio is an all-in-one fitness studio for group training, from fun and energetic indoor cycling classes, with some of the best instructors around, to full body strengthening with yoga and TRX. But that's not all. Evolution has an infrared sauna for your recovery needs. 
It's a one-of-a-kind studio that has the lights, sound, and atmosphere to make your workout fun. You can check out their class schedule on the Vigero app. Hustle, grind, conquer. Evolution Spin Studio. That's where our story should end, but what kind of Halloween episode would this be if that was the end? So, a few days later, several people start approaching Sheriff Saxon with odd sightings. Many claim to have seen Joseph Damon after his death. It's always the same story. Joseph Damon standing off in the distance with a fire poker in his hand. He's been seen by several people on the hill where he was hanged. Sheriff Saxon doesn't take much stock in these sightings. It's sensationalism. He reassures these folks that it's not uncommon to see someone you've lost or witnessed die after they've passed. It's just a trick of the mind. But the next report about Damon unsettles the sheriff. Stephen and Hannah Damon, Joseph's parents, were visited by Mr. Mullet after Joseph's execution. He stops by their house to pay his condolences, and when he arrives, they are tense and shaky, fearful. They look like they've seen a ghost. The Damons tell Mr. Mullet that they can hear noises from across the street, from Joseph and Almira's house. They hear them arguing in the wee hours of the night, Joseph shouting, Elmira praying. Mr. Mullet inspects the house and finds no sign of forced entry or tampering. But Mr. Mullet did take notice of Elmira's Bible, laying on her rocking chair, which gave him an uneasy feeling. A feeling he shared with old man Casey, who owns the Casey Hotel, where Joseph's body had been put on display. Mr. Casey had a few sightings of Joseph Damon as well, but he didn't share them until later. Initially, he thought one of his hotel guests was drunk and wandered across the street. When he called for the man to come back inside, and he didn't, Mr. Casey double-checked the guest's room to make sure it was the person he thought was outside. The guest in question was sleeping comfortably in their bed. The man outside had disappeared before Mr. Casey's return. What stood out in Mr. Casey's mind was the fact that the man outside was carrying a fire poker. A few months later, Sheriff Saxton is missing. He's gone without any trace of leaving. Co-workers and peers say that he hasn't been the same since the Damon hanging, taking personal responsibility for the first hanging attempt and failure. Neighbors say that Saxon had talked about moving to Canada at some point, but if he did, he left without any possessions. Sheriff Saxon is never found. The following April, Martin's body is discovered by his wife at the bottom of the quarry. The coroner indicates that Martin had some sort of medical emergency, most likely a heart attack. At this point, North has moved to Canada, where it's rumored that he has been executed by hanging for a murder he committed there. And no one knows where Stephen Jr. is living. Without anyone to care for them after Martin's death, 
Stephen and Hannah Damon, are relocated to the county poor farm, where they live out the remainder of their lives. After all of this, the county becomes known for the story of Joseph Damon. In fact, two local boys, the Harkness brothers, Jacob and North, go to the quarry on a dare from their friends. And what do they find in the bushes by the quarry? A fire poker. Not realizing what it was, they return it to the house nearby. As they approach the house, they realize it's the Damon's house. They hear a man yelling and a woman praying. They drop the fire poker and run. They go straight home to their father and tell him everything. Their father, Bill Harkness, notifies Sheriff Gates at once, who insists that the boys go with him into the Damon house. When they get there, the fire poker is gone, and the house undisturbed. Word also has it that Almira has even been seen since her murder. Bloody arms and clinging to her Bible. And that's the end of today's story. Or is it? Do you feel unsettled? Haunted? Well, to be honest, I do too. I had a lot of family help on the story today. A big thank you to Eric, Kristen, and John Bentley for all of our discussions on location markers, hangman's rope charts, and morbid customs of the 1800s. Other sources of information were the books Chautauqua Ghosts by Paul Leone. I got my copy at the Good Neighbor Bookstore in Lakewood. I highly recommend it. It's an excellent read. And The History of Chautauqua County, New York by Obed Edson and Georgia Drew Merrill, published in 1894. As always, thank you for tuning in. Happy Halloween and stay safe, dear listeners. Mm-hmm.